Hello and welcome to Recap, Per Capita's research and policy podcast where we examine inequality and unpack our latest work in our fight for a fairer Australia. We're coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose lands were never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. I'm your host, Emma Dawson, Executive Director of Per Capita, and this week I'm joined by our Andrew Harrington Fellow, Lucy Tonkin. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you on for the first time, I think. Um, And you're coming to talk to us about uh, the latest report from our Centre for Equitable Housing, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. But first of all, why don't you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be at Per Capita? Yeah, so I started at Per Capita in 2021 as an intern. I was doing my final year of Bachelor of Arts, um, majoring in International Studies at RMIT. And I just wanted something that was a little bit more... Firstly, um, focus on local politics because that wasn't something I'd done a lot in my degree. And also something that um, had that real world standing in terms of issues that were really present right now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it was during the pandemic and I was just consuming lots of politics stuff and really thinking about how's that policy sort of made, what's the processes that happen. And from there, I've worked on the evidence-based policy project and I got started working on a landscape study into housing affordability, um, in which got published in May 2022. That's right. From there, I came back and worked on the evidence-based policy project again and then started work as the Andrew Herrington Fellow doing research into housing and urban planning. And I'm currently studying my master's in urban planning at the University of Melbourne. Um, from there, I've worked with Matt Lloyd Cape at the Centre for Equitable Housing, and we've done lots of policy submissions and also a few larger reports, most kind of notably our um, housing monitor reports. Yep. Really great work coming out of the centre, and you've been a big part of that. Um, I'll just clarify for our audience, the Andrew Harrington Fellowship here at Per Capita is named in honour of the late Andrew Harrington, who was a a very talented uh, policy uh, advisor in um, state and federal governments on issues around housing, um, urban planning and transport, and a good friend of Per Capita's and the John Cain Foundation. So we launched that fellowship in his name, and you were uh, inaugural Andrew Harrington Fellow, and still are. Yeah. Um, it's a, an evidence to all of you that you can start somewhere as an intern and get a real job out of it. <laughs> <laughs> we were thrilled to bring you back to the team uh, yeah. after that, that internship, Lucy. So, um, And this report that we're talking about today is really your first lead report as a lead yeah. author for us. Um, and it's a really great one for anyone that hasn't checked it out already. Uh, it's called Glass Ceilings, Gendered Inequality in the Housing System, an issue close to my heart with my um, work and focus on gender inequality. Um, and it came out of the survey, didn't it, initially? Yeah. So uh, in December 2022, we ran a survey with about a sample of a bit over 4,000 people. It was called the Australian Housing Monitor, and it just exported um, some of the respondents' experiences of housing affordability, housing quality, and also their policy preferences regarding housing markets, and then also some related issues like superannuation and taxation. And when we did that survey, we realised that basically every single response had a very gendered outcome. Mm. There were almost no questions where there were similar responses based on male and female respondents. And we thought that it wouldn't really do the results justice just to do it, kind of has it almost as an addendum in the major report. So we went back and we looked at some of the literature that we already had from previous reports and also some broader academic literature about gender equality in housing. 
And that became the Glass Ceilings Report. Yeah, and it's a really um, illuminating read. And just to emphasise again for our listeners, the findings are based on community attitudes. So it's a nationally representative sample of people. This is how... What we've, what we've found here is how people are actually experiencing the housing market and what they think about it and what their personal histories or um, current trajectories might be in terms of housing security, the, the, whether or not they'll own their own home, whether they're renters, whether they're likely to be renters for life. Um, and what you really found in this report, and it was, a, I will say, a shock but not a surprise for me with my research background, but still shocking um, that it was so prevalent, that women experience disadvantages across a whole heap of social and economic indicators, and we know that, but what makes the housing market such another of course, cause or uh, source of, of those inequalities for women? Well, very much it is almost an inevitable consequence of those disadvantages that yeah. women experience in society. The housing market in Australia is extremely financialized. Their public housing obviously does exist, so does community housing, but it's been residualized since about the 1980s. So the majority of housing options that are available to people are market-based options. Yep. And the inherent characteristic of a marketized system is that people that are providing housing want to maximize economic gains from it. And they're providing housing to the people that have the highest propensity to pay. And therefore, if you're experiencing lower outcomes in things like the job market, employment, you might have um, unpaid labour at home, you caring responsibilities for older parents or children, if you have less money, you have less ability to pay and you are competing with people that have more ability to mm -hmm. pay. So in that way, it is almost an inevitable outcome of the way that society is set up disadvantage women on the economic scale. Absolutely. And, you know, my own work um, looking last year at... at the, and the year before at the rising rates of homelessness amongst women over 55. We hear that statistic a lot in conversations with the community sector. And again, to clarify, they're not the largest group of homeless people, but they're the fastest growing group. Um, and the work that I've done in the past really brings that to the fore, that it's the reason, the reason for that is that women interrupt their careers to have children, they interrupt their careers to care for disabled family and friends, older relatives, they're more likely to work part-time when they do go back to work, and they're more likely to work in underpaid, feminised industries in the care and services sector. And as you say, um, without a non-market option in the housing sector, which we have much less of in Australia than in comparable countries, um, those women find themselves trapped in private rentals. And then, of course, the elephant in the room here is women and children fleeing domestic and family violence, yeah? Yes, absolutely. So domestic and family violence is a leading cause of homelessness for women and children and gender non-conforming individuals. The requirement to secure um, stable and affordable accommodation after leaving a crisis situation is very traumatic and difficult mm. and often is almost impossible when someone has lower financial um, purchasing power. You're basically asking a private landlord to give you stable accommodation who is seeking to maximise those yeah. wealth benefits. And it is just has extremely tragic outcomes. Yeah. And it's something that we really need to focus on when we're thinking about who is being left behind in this system, which is basically just a race to um, maximise wealth. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as you say, inevitable uh, that a private landlord's going to look for a tenant that he thinks is best able to pay the, the most competitive market rent. We know there's discrimination against people on income support in the private rental system, that there's discrimination against single parents, against people with disabilities. 
um, and that's really where the loss of community housing, public and social housing, over the last 30 to 40 years has really had an impact, isn't it? Absolutely, and those disadvantages do just coalesce and combine to create those outcomes. Loss of job. Um, marriage breakdown. Marriage breakdown. Um, if someone's a migrant or they speak a language other than English, and also LGBTQI individuals. Mm, mm. And um, let's let's just clarify here, Lucy, because I know both you and I share this frustration yeah. that the data available to us, even on a, when we do our own survey like this, uh, is very limited in terms of representing people of non-binary genders, diverse gender identities, and people from uh, LGBTQI plus communities. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that um, we are working to maximise our data collection for. There's also some great previous research, um, particularly the Private Lives Study, that does look into um, people that identify as LGBTQI over various indicators, housing, homelessness, and also um, employment and social exclusion. Mm. And that's something that we can provide resources for um, that are able to capture that data a lot better than us. But it is something that we really want to emphasise that Gender, in terms of men and women, that binary is not the only way of looking at gender, then it shouldn't be the only way of looking at mm. gender. And the way that data is presented doesn't represent the diversity that does exist in the Encouragingly, community. Encouragingly, though, the ABS says they're working on that for the next lot of census data collection, yeah. which will be really helpful. Yeah. And before we do get any comments, and we inevitably will get these comments, we know that men are more likely to be homeless, according to uh, census data. Uh, but again, I'd like to emphasise that the census captures whether or not you are homed or housed on the night of the census, and we know women are underrepresented in those stats because they're more likely to be living in crisis accommodation or couch surfing or otherwise managing their homelessness without sleeping rough. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, if you actually look at the data around who's accessing those housing and homelessness services, it's overwhelmingly women with children. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Just wanted to get all those caveats on the record. <laughs> so we know we know that um, you know the lack of social housing is a real uh, a real impact and, and greatly affects uh, women and, and children and particularly those um, fleeing domestic and family violence. But you found some other really interesting points of gender disparity in this survey that people might not have been that aren't you know aren't necessarily in the news as much um, and one of those that was I think particularly striking to us was the gift gap do you want to tell us about the gift gap absolutely so this was probably the most surprising findings that we found it wasn't something that we really had any sort of hypothesis on and it wasn't something we were even looking for we almost found these results as a mistake so we asked happy accident <laughs> yes absolutely so we asked respondents the question did you receive any assistance from your family or your partner's family when you purchased your first residential property or house in Australia. And we found that male respondents were more likely than women to report that they'd received that family financial assistance. Mm. So that might have been as a gift or a loan. We combined yep. that data than um, female respondents. And that grew over time. So there was about a seven percentage point gap between all men and all women who responded to that question. Um, and men were more likely to have um, received that support. But then when we looked at millennials, so people who had bought that house generally in the last decade, we found that 33% of male millennial homeowners reported receiving financial support as a gift, 
And that's compared with 21% of female millennial homeowners. It's a 12% difference in yeah. the probably the youngest generation to become homeowners. You'd expect it to have gone the other way, wouldn't you? Yeah, but it really, really hasn't. So when we look at people that bought their house in the 1980s, the gap is pretty negligible. It's mm. usually about one or two percentage points difference. Um, but then that gap starts widening around the early 2000s, around 2001, and there's it gets wider and wider until about 2019. And it's slightly tapered off, but that is a little bit difficult to see if there's an mm. ongoing trend. It's just been the last few years. And that was pretty shocking to us. Yeah, We thought that it might have even gone the other way, mm. um, but it obviously has not. No, this is an area in which gender inequality seems to be getting worse. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, and we, as far as we know, we're, we might be the first people in Australia to really do this research. So yeah. we weren't really able to create too many, I guess, substantial speculations of the yeah. cause of that. We've got a few ideas. We have a few ideas. <laughs> but interestingly, international research has been very diverse on this. Mm. Um, it seems to very be very contextual. Mm. Some studies from the UK and the US found the opposite, yeah. that um, parents are more likely to support their female um, mm. child or if you know mm. there's two siblings. And then others have said that they might be more likely to support the male child um, because they might be providing things like paying for a wedding mm. or providing non-financial mm. assistance to their daughters like childcare mm. or um, assistance, say, building a house, something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting issue and one we're diving into more deeply. Mm -hmm. um, but it is difficult to determine. We, I mean, my initial assumption was, oh, maybe... Uh, families are paying for their daughter's wedding and their son's house, you know, uh, which yeah. is a very traditional way of looking at things. Yeah. Um, when when this report was released, I noticed some talkback callers saying, well, there were different cultures that had different approaches. So um, a, a talkback caller who came from the Indian diaspora here said, well, in my culture, we tend to give the money to the male children and keep and other kinds of support to female children. So we don't know exactly why it's going no. on. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, it was totally. It was something that people did like speculate mm, yeah. on yeah um but obviously it is so couched in other people's experiences yes. it is really difficult to know what the trend might be mm. um but a 12 percent gap significant enough right? absolutely it to be definitely a is significant enough and you know probably like our best guess was that it just because of those disadvantages that women experience in other forms of wealth accumulation male sons might be further along on the process of saving money um, women do graduate with higher hex debts and yeah. they're in education for longer. So by the time they maybe reach their early to mid-30s, they might still be paying down those debts, whereas their brother, who might have lower debts or less debt at all, might have enough saved that their parents can almost just add a little bit. The son's top. a better investment at that point. It's uh, yes. yeah. And again, like you say, women uh, graduate university in greater numbers than men, but with more debt and then usually go into occupations that pay them less for mm -hmm. the same yeah. qualifications. It's a wicked, wicked problem. It definitely is. Um, but it's certainly a really interesting finding. What were some other findings that you, you were found interesting in the report before we wrap up? Do you want to uh, mention a few other things? Absolutely. Um, one of the findings that we found were that men tend to pay their houses off quicker than women. Mm -hmm. um, so men report owning their homes without a mortgage at a far younger age. 41% of men reported that they owned their homes outright when they were under the age of 60. Good God. Um, and that's compared with just 31% of women. So there's a 10% gap there. 
And women do move out of home earlier than men as mm. well. That gap is closing out of your time. But for people that are getting close to closing, paying off their home, that gap was very present when they were younger. Mm. So it does mean that women have spent more of their lives paying those housing costs. And obviously that does affect their ability to make investments in other areas, say it's, if it's buying a second property or if it's putting more money putting into more their into super, super yep. or giving money to their children if that is something that they want to do. Mm. That was something that we found was very concerning, especially because of that um, trend of more older women falling into homelessness, yep. yep. People that women have those housing costs for longer. And as you wind down your employment, that is a real concern. Mm. Um, another finding that we were really surprised with was that surprised but <laughs> not <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> yeah. um, so we found that men had higher rates of investment property ownership. Oh, yeah. So 18% of male homeowners reported also owning one investment property in Australia. And that's compared with 11% of women in mm. this category. And this category doesn't include rent vesters. Mm -hmm. So those are people that um, are renting currently and are... Um, so they live in a rental they home, live in but a they rental. own an investment property. Yeah, yeah. that's mm -hmm. right. Um, and when we looked at rent vesters, um, it was almost double. So 10% to 5% um, male-female balance. Mm -hmm. And then when we looked at people who owned more than one investment property, 6% of male homeowners said that they owned two or more investment properties compared with 3% of yeah. women. Mm -hmm. So this is really concerning, especially when you look at the taxation regime that we have in regards to investment properties in Australia. So there's lots of talk about negative gearing um, in terms of people being able to deduct losses from rental income from their overall income. Mm. But I think what's really important to say is that our system of rent negative gearing is pretty unique in the yeah. OECD. Japan's the only country that currently has a full system of negative gearing like what we have. New Zealand used to have, but they've actually started to wind it back. Mm. So most countries you can't kind of take that rental income and take it away from your whole income from work and oh. things like that, it's quarantined. Just for rental income, yes. right? You can offset your losses against your income from yeah. the same asset. Absolutely. But we say you can offset your losses from that asset against every bit of tax you pay. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Which clearly with men on higher incomes are more likely to have assets benefits men. Yeah, they're paying less tax overall. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that we really need to think about. It's not just these isolated kind of numbers almost kind of look like little quirks. This is a whole system that is systematically benefiting men who are able to accumulate that wealth. And like we said, it's not to say that there aren't men that are struggling um, with housing and that's nothing mm. that I would ever want to suggest. No. There are so many factors that influence the, your ability to accumulate that wealth. When we're looking at the whole national kind of picture, it is just a very strong trend that exists within yeah. our society. Yeah. Um, and... One last thing that I wanted to talk about mm. was mortgage affordability. Yeah. So this is in terms of people who already do have entered the property market and they're now just paying down that mortgage. We've asked people the question, how would you best describe your ability to pay your mortgage? So 45% of male mortgage holders reported that they were keeping up with their mortgage without any difficulty. And that's compared with 32% of women. Another big gap. Yes, absolutely. So... We can see that entering the housing market isn't the only kind of protective factor against that housing stress. Lots of people are entering the market and still having mm. that real problem. And as interest rates grow up, that becomes a really pressing situation for many households. Yeah. And this is really concerning because um, losing a home mm. through things um, 
like mortgage stress is obviously extremely emotionally and financially stressful and it's it is overwhelmingly impacting female um homeowners yeah and it and it really does i mean all of this research and all of these findings from the housing monitor chime with and reinforce the research i've done over the years that finds for example women are more likely to focus on day-to-day costs than long-term investments and that's primarily because they manage the household bills. They're the ones that are primarily responsible for children. You see that playing out in all of this data, that men are ahead on their investments, they're ahead on their assets, and they tend to prioritise those assets, whereas women are prioritising the day-to-day needs of their families, most likely. Absolutely. Um, and it also you know, finds that like women we know when a marriage breaks up are more likely to say, well, I'll keep the house to keep some stability for the kids. Um, and then let perhaps the superannuation go. And if they don't then have the ability to service that mortgage, they can have to sell the house and retire without one. Um, so all of these factors are compounding over the life course Absolutely. to add to gendered yeah. outcomes. Yeah. Yes. Finally, Lucy, what are some things we could do to make the housing market more equitable for women? Firstly, um, as I've said earlier, the fact that our housing market is a market, mm. I think, is the number one issue that we need to talk about. So over time, investment in public and social housing, social housing and community housing has dropped um, as a proportion of our spending and also a proportion of units that are being created. It's now not available to a very wide majority of the population. That Mm. means lots of people that are low income who might have been eligible for social housing in the past are now competing on the private rental market. And they're competing with a huge proportion of the population who, especially the younger people who aren't able to enter the home ownership. Yeah, that's right. So that does need to change. Um, Investment in social housing is really crucial in making sure that people aren't just relying on this competitive market that's getting more and more competitive Mm. um, with very low vacancy rates and then things like rent bidding that um, lots of legislation hasn't necessarily been able to stamp Mm. out. Mm. And I think we just need to stop thinking about housing as something you almost compete for. It's like something you win. It needs to be something that all people have entitlement to just because it's a human right. Yeah. I mean, we say our, our motto in the Centre for Equitable Housing is in a country as wealthy as this, everyone should have a secure, safe, comfortable, affordable home. Absolutely. And it is really essential that we need to keep on advocating for that. So it's not just negative gearing that women are disadvantaged in terms of the concessions that they do receive. Capital gains tax conditions mm. also disproportionately flow towards men. Yep. And so do superannuation tax yep. um, concessions. So we need to have a think about who these concessions are benefiting. Are they benefiting people that already have the wealth or are they actually disadvantaging people's ability to get that wealth in the first place? It hasn't been something I've mentioned just here, but the obvious implication of there being incentives for people to invest and mm. policies that make it easier for people who already have those that capital to invest in housing is that house prices go up. Yep. And people are having to compete with investors who are getting those concessions and are almost getting their investments subsidised. So that is another key thing that we really need to be advocating for. Absolutely. And I think while we look at a range of issues and policy solutions in the centre... Um, things around regulations on on rentals, on short short-term accommodation, 
Um, we know that until those tax settings are looked at, we'll be tinkering with a broken market. Uh, and that the while some economists will say, oh, look, house prices might only drop by 2 to 4% if you reform those tax concessions, uh, it's kind of missing the bigger point, which is that they have deliberately skewed our housing system to be uh, an, an asset class and an investment class primarily above anything else. Um, and so uh, we are big advocates here for genuine wholesale tax reform um, in the interests of fairness and in the interests of a more productive society um, and recognising, again, that this is not the fault of individual landlords. You know, this idea that if you're a landlord, you're an ev evil, greedy person <coughs> might be true for a few with several hundred properties. Uh, but the average investor in Australia is a, is a, is a worker with a, a pay-as-you-go income and what we've done is create a, a society in which you'd be crazy not to put your money into property. We don't incentivise any other form of investment um, and so people have been encouraged to do this. They're then very highly leveraged, tying up a lot of property that's not available for younger generations or people in need. Uh, the only ones winning out of this really are those that are already pretty well off and have a nice asset class to begin with. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I just wanted to note in terms of investment in non-market housing, mm. women actually were more likely to support this policy yeah. than male respondents. Women were also more likely to support increases to rental assistance. Mm. So these aren't property necessarily policies that are wild or fringe or anything no, like that. they're not that. radical ideas. No, and older generations we found were more mm. likely to support increases to social and community housing. We think that's just because they it used to exist and now it doesn't. And they remember what, how beneficial it was, right? Absolutely. Young people have kind of lost any faith that a non-market player in the housing system could have an impact. But Absolutely. we know the research shows that the best form of rent control is building more public housing. Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll leave it on that note, I think. More public housing and tax reform. Thank you. Um, look, that's all we've got time for today. But Lucy, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. And for your terrific report. And thank you listeners again for joining us. Uh, go onto the per capita website. You can click straight through to this website for the Centre for Equitable Housing where you can find glass ceilings or you can find it on our homepage as well. And if you'd like to learn more about the report, that's where you can do it, uh, centreforequitablehousing.org.au, and it's called Glass Ceilings, Gendered Outcomes in the Housing Market. Join us next time as we continue to examine inequality and work together for a fairer Australia.